Let me invite you now to uh, open your Bibles, please, to the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. And our scripture reading today will be Acts chapter 7, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 1. That'll be our reading as we continue our way through the narrative of the book of Acts regarding today Stephen, who was the first martyr in the church. Um, There's been a lot of talk about the virus, and it doesn't really... I would say you view it quite differently when it hits your own family. And in this past week, my sister-in-law, my younger brother's wife, went to the hospital with it, and she's back home and doing well. And then about, was it Friday, Pam? Friday, Pam's brother, Michael O'Brien, had a severe case of it. We were quite... uh, anxious about him getting treatment, getting to the hospital, dealing with the pneumonia. I mean, it took him down quickly. And so when it hits closer to the family, it gets a little more real. And so I want you to remember to pray, especially today when you have time, um, for Michael O'Brien and his recovery. Uh, he's, he's doing better. He's received plasma and um, he was able actually to text back and forth with Pam last night. But I think he thought for quite a while that he was about to meet Jesus, which is a good thing, but a scary thing nonetheless. So with that said, let's look in chapter 7. We have a a lengthy scripture reading, and so I'm not going to race through it, but we will spend our time uh, looking at this. We're not going to dive into every detail because of time. By the way, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 38 sermons on this chapter. Do you hear me? 38 sermons on one chapter in the Bible. You're going to get one. But he preached 38. Uh, It was a different time and place. So hear now the word of the Lord. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. 
And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. And our fathers and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promises drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. Then came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 
This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol. And were rejoicing in the works of their hands, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. This is Amos. Do you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, and the star of your god Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as the one, uh, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. As you who received the law is delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. 
And we pray that the Holy Spirit would fall fresh upon us and open our eyes and ears and hearts to see, to understand, and to obey the word of truth, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a long passage, right? Uh, many, many people have commented on this passage as being somewhat ridiculous. I'm talking about those who are not of the faith, so to speak. They have said many disparaging things about Stephen's speech because who did he give the speech to? The Sanhedrin Council. Who knew the history of Israel like the back of their hands? The Sanhedrin Council. But they had made a splendid exercise in missing the point of redemptive history. They totally missed the point. And so Stephen is a central figure here in the book of Acts and is unique in the way he preaches here uh, as reported by Luke. This is the longest address in the book of Acts and it contains only one mention of Jesus, a veiled reference in verse 52 to the righteous one. It abounds in references to the Old Testament yet omits messianic testimonies quoted in other sermons. It's an indictment of Israel's rebellion past and present and leads not really to a call for repentance and a promise of forgiveness as in other sermons in the book of Acts, but to a pronouncement of condemnation reminiscent of the prophets and oracles of doom in the prophetic literature. Yet Stephen's message plays a pivotal role in the spread of salvation to the ends of the earth. Through the persecution provoked by Stephen's witnesses, witness, the Lord scattered other witnesses bearing good news out of Judea and Samaria in the second stage of the early church's development. Stephen's message also anticipated Paul's later confrontations with Jewish audiences. But most importantly, Stephen's speech laid the theological foundation for the dispersion of the believers and scattering of the new Israel in the first century. And so Stephen's speech, there are three quick things I want us to see about it. First was regarded as an assault on the temple and the Torah. And it's really interesting when you look at this speech carefully what the point of it is, and I'll give it to you clearly in a moment. At first glance, this speech doesn't seem to be answering the questions that were asked by the Sanhedrin Council. The question is, are these charges true? Do you teach that the temple is unnecessary? But the basic argument of Stephen is that God is a living God, not restrained or confined to a building. His glory presence is available without having to travel to Jerusalem to a building. God is not in a box. God is on the move. And the ancient preacher John Chrysostom understood Stephen to be teaching the holy place is wherever God may be. And so Stephen's speech was a response to the accusations that had been made against him. 
It was alleged that he had spoken blasphemous words against Moses and against God and words against this holy place and against the law, claiming that Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs Moses had handed down. In each case, we see the same two accusations. Stephen was challenging the permanence of the temple and the Torah, the two big identity markers of the people of God under the Old Covenant. Stephen is striking at the nerve here. He is hitting the radix. He is hitting the heart in this speech. And although geographical distance from Jerusalem made the local synagogue the site where most Jews weekly practice of their faith occurred, the temple continued to be the center, the true center of Jerusalem, or Judaism until its destruction in A.D. 70. In the synagogues, the Torah was taught, prayer was offered each Sabbath, but only in the Jerusalem temple could legitimate sacrifice be offered, for only in Jerusalem had the Lord caused his name to dwell and among the most heinous crimes that the Seleucid king Antiochus, Antiochus IV committed against Judaism was to offer sacrifices of swine to idolatrous um, images erected in the temple in Jerusalem that provoked the Maccabean liberation movement. With Antiochus's abomination of desolation and later desecration of the temple by the Roman general Pompey, fresh in Jewish memories, it is understandable that Jesus' announcement that the temple would be destroyed was seized upon by his accusers as blasphemous treason against the God of Israel. And the Torah, that is the law, and here I believe more the ceremonial aspect of it, was even more fundamental to the Jewish experience and practice. As the disclosure of the Lord's will for his chosen people, it was Israel's life. A tractate in the Mishnah, that is a collection of rabbinical teachings, was compiled around A.D. 200. It compares the law to the medicine of life, which like a plaster on a wound, protects Israelites from the infection of their evil inclinations. And so the Israelites and Judaism in the first century saw the Torah as medicine. This is the way you fix people. This is the way you fix the flesh. This is how you correct your sinfulness is by the application of the law to your life. But what we know is the law has no power to change. The law can clearly spell out for us what God's will is, what the right thing to do is, but it has no intrinsic power in itself to affect obedience. When I was a young boy, uh, teenager, I don't remember my exact age, uh, we used to go shopping once a month at this really huge, I guess it would be like a Walmart today, it was called Dixie Mart, that I'll tell you where I was in the south, and I even hesitate to call the name, but it was Dixie Mart, that was the name of the store, and uh, I, was, I was aware that the, of the opposite sex and, and was kind of interested in 
uh, looking at girls. And I remember walking through the store smiling and kind of flirting with young girls, and then I went into the restroom. And uh, I walked into this restroom, and the lighting in that restroom was so exposing, when I looked at the mirror, I almost melted on the spot. Because I'd started playing football, I think it was my freshman year, and my skin had broken out. I mean, if my dad took me to a dermatologist, it must have really been bad. But he did. And I remember walking into that bathroom and looking at my face, and I wanted to go hide. I said, I felt like the elephant man. I wanted to say, I'm not an animal. But I was looking in that mirror, and I was looking at myself, and I just felt myself shrink. And I wanted to put a bag over my head, walk out of the bathroom, go straight to the car, and go back home, and never walk look at another mirror the rest of my life. I did not try to take the mirror and rub it on my face to get rid of my skin disease. Why? The purpose of the mirror was not to cleanse my face of it, but rather to what? Expose, to show, to reveal. That is the purpose of God's law. The purpose of God's law is to, first of all, give us uh, the righteousness of God in terms of how we should live in order to please Him. Yes, but another purpose of the law is to expose our sin, to show us our sin so that we will cry out for a Savior. We will see that we need a Savior. We will run to the Savior. The law was never given so that we could keep it in order to earn a righteousness, but rather to expose us to the fact that we are filthy and have no righteousness and cause us to run to Jesus. Well, the Jews in the first century saw the law as medicine. And when Jesus said, I have come uh, not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, he meant that in a number of ways. He filled it full of meaning, but he also meant it in that I will fulfill it in order that I can give my record of righteousness to sinners who can't possibly establish one on their own. And, and Christ is the end of law for righteousness. That is, using the law to attempt to establish righteousness. And so, immediately seizing upon this, uh, they were incensed by what he's saying here. Uh, so, he addresses them as fathers and brothers, and he, he begins to talk about the law. And Stephen is saying... It's not I who disregard the law, it's you who do so. In verse 38, Stephen shows that he believes Moses is divinely called and brought God's word of truth to us. But then Stephen shows from the very beginning, Israel's record, according to the law, is nothing but failure. This happened under Aaron, where they constructed the uh, golden calf, completely destroying the Ten Commandments before he ever got them down the mountain. Okay? But Stephen shows the entire history of Israel that every prophet and leader was persecuted by their own people. Joseph, Moses, David. So there's no way that Israel is ever going to be saved by the law. But then he also begins to speak about the God who travels and the people who spurn their Savior. 
Stephen's speech addressed both charges that had been leveled against him in response to the implication that his announcement of the temple's impending destruction was a blasphemous attack on God, Stephen surveys Israel's history to demonstrate that the Lord's presence with his people is never limited to locations like Mount Zion, Jerusalem, or even the land of promise. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. Where was he? In Mesopotamia. That ain't the promised land. And was with Joseph where? In Egypt. And he sent his angel to Moses where? In the Sinai desert. Declaring that the sight of the burning bush to be holy ground. Why? Because he was present there. Although Solomon built a house for the Lord. Stephen paraphrased Solomon's dedicatory prayer in his statement that the Most High does not live in houses made by men. Israelite history was full of comings and goings from the land of promise from the time of Abraham who went out from the land of the Chaldeans to Haran and from those uh, from there relocated to this land which Stephen's accusers now live in. Abraham's arrival in the land was not really a homecoming, for God gave him no inheritance, not even a footstep, but only a promise of future possession by Abraham's descendants. Although he was childless, after suffering as an alien in a foreign land, Abraham's seed would come out. And in fact, Moses, after being an alien in the land of Midian, did later lead them out. Joseph was sold into Egypt. Uh, to which Jacob sent out his other sons when famine struck. And he came in response to Joseph's summons. And upon his death, Jacob and his sons were transported back to the land for burial in the tomb that Abraham had purchased. Further testimony to their tenuous residence in the land. Even before rehearsing, the fathers being led into the land with Joshua, Stephen would introduce a prophetic word foretelling the exile when God would transport you beyond Babylon. Now, God's presence with the fathers as they entered and exited the land, making holy even the wilderness of their sojourning, should have convinced Stephen's accusers that God's presence among his people cannot be confined to one holy place, land, city, or temple on this earth. You see what's happening here. We see the church beginning to become separated from uh, Old Covenant Israel and from all of the identity markers, uh, Temple and Torah, that were most famous and most distinguishing, now there's a change as the gospel goes from one culture, one ethnic group, to the, to the land, which was God's design all along for his people to be a light to the nations. But now he's fulfilling that through the church, breaking away its ties from Israel and temple worship and Torah observance to take the gospel to the nations. That is exactly what Stephen is offering an apology here for. Or he's apologetically communicating to this. Then he charges that they had opposed Moses. 
God's cho uh, chosen leader and lawgiver. And Stephen answered, it's not me, but my accusers who have fallen into the pattern so typical of their ancestors, rejecting the deliverer sent by God. Previous generations had repudiated Joseph and Moses, through whom God preserved life and gave liberty. They had persecuted the prophets who announced the righteous rescuer to come. Now this generation, proud to have the law, but refusing to keep it, had killed the only righteous one to whom the prophets pointed. So it was Stephen's opponents who had failed to follow the law of Moses. They were the rebellious, stiff-necked, and uncircumcised heart of whom Moses had spoken. Which I also find ironically to be true of legalists in the world today. Legalists, while they uphold the law and fight for the uh, morality of the law with all their being are the ones who violate it the most because I've never met a, me a legalist who loves sinners. I just haven't met one. And there may be one, but I haven't met one. And that's always true. It's always proven to be true from the scriptures. So Moses stands preeminent among the prophets who predicted the coming of the righteous servant. As Peter had declared earlier in Acts, therefore only Stephen and those like him listened to Jesus and were really heeding what Moses taught. Stephen's overview of Israelite history with his attention to the themes of the location of worship and the leaders appointed by God provides a theological transition in the narrative of the book of Acts to the dispersion of the church among the Gentile nations. Soon persecution would bar most Christians, at least the Hellenistic wing of the church, from access to the temple on Mount Zion. In the Old Testament, such a scattering was God's curse against rebellious people, excluding them from his presence and his land. But with the saving achievement of the Messiah Jesus, Herod's temple had become obsolete. Exclusion from the edifice that dominated Zion was no longer exclusion from the courts of the Lord, for Jesus was the new temple as well as the final deliverer. And the tongues of fire, miniature glory clouds resting on each of the disciples at Pentecost, sealed the presence of the Spirit of glory and of God wherever the believers might be scattered. The God who was with Abraham in Mesopotamia, with Joseph in Egypt, and with Moses at Sinai also is with his scattered messengers. Now we proceed to the stoning of Stephen. And um, it is a brutal picture uh, that we witness in verses 54 through 60. Stephen was ready to be the first true martyr who sealed his testimony with his blood. His death was full of Christ. Luke records three further sentences which he spoke, the first of which referred to Christ, while the two remaining were addressed to Christ. First, when the Sanhedrin, infuriated by his accusations, ground their teeth at him, snarling like wild animals, 
Stephen was filled with the Spirit, had a vision of the glory of God, and cried, Look, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, commentators and scholars have forever had the question, Why is Jesus standing? We know that he's seated at the right hand of God, but why is he standing? And nobody really from a biblical point of view, can, can say, other than to say, the first martyr receives Christ's attention and welcome into heaven. Others would go so far to say that any time a believer dies, who do they meet and see when they die? Many people, upon the basis of this passage, would say, the person who stands to welcome you into the presence of glory is the Lord Jesus himself. It would not surprise me if that's true. I kind of think it is true. And I think sometimes when believers die, you see, it's almost as if they see someone who's not there, who we can't see. And whether they step off into another dimension, I don't know, it's beyond me. But it would not surprise me that Jesus would be standing to receive those whose names are written on his hand. Who would, who would stand to receive those who have fought the good fight and finished the course and are now received into glory. But Stephen saw it, and he saw it. Instead of sitting at God's right hand, it may have been that the Son of Man who in Daniel's vision was led into the presence of God stood before him to receive authority and power, but it seems likely that Christ's standing is related more directly to Stephen that he stood up either as his heavenly advocate to plead his righteousness before the throne, not Stephen's, or to welcome his first martyr. Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now we see Christ confessing his servant before God. Unwilling to listen to Stephen's testimony to the exaltation of Jesus, the council was overcome by uh, fear and they covered their ears and they sought to drown out his voice by yelling. Worse, they determined to silence him, so they rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and they stoned him. It seems that Stephen's stoning was more of a mob lynching than an official execution. It was during this actual stoning that Stephen uttered the second sentence, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. His prayer was similar, of course, to what Luke recorded when Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Yet this was not Stephen's last word. He spoke out a third sentence when he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Very reminiscent of the first words of Jesus from the cross where he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Whether it was Stephen who... Uh, deli uh, deliberately imitated his master or whether it was Luke observing the parallels I don't quite know but in both cases false witnesses were produced and the charge was one of blasphemy in both cases the execution was accompanied by two prayers as each prayed for the forgiveness of his executioners and for the reception of his spirit as he died thus did the disciple whether consciously or unconsciously reflect his master and so Stephen fell asleep as he stoned 
By contrast, Saul was there, verse 1a of chapter 8, giving approval to his death. We will meet up with Saul later. So that's what we have in Stephen's speech. I got to tell you, it's hard to summarize 60 verses, <laughs> 61 verses in this amount of time. But I hope you see what the point of Stephen's speech was. He's saying that God's presence is everywhere. Theologians speak of the omnipresence of God. God is in the entirety of his being present in every point of space in the universe. There is nowhere God is not. But there is a special presence of God with his people called covenantal presence where God draws near. We as New Testament believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwells within us. We cannot escape him. He is with us everywhere we go. He is with his people. And the second thing St Stephen was saying, the law cannot produce holiness. It can show you what it looks like, but it can't produce it. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done for us in order to change our hearts, in order to not only justify us, but sanctify us, uh, causing us to be born again into new creatures into Christ Jesus. And so Stephen's speech is beautiful when properly seen in its context and understood accomplishing what Luke wanted to accomplish with it. The people who read this account were not the ones who were there watching this, but believers years and years later after the event occurred, seeing that the way the church exists is God now indwells his true temple, believers in Christ, and that God now rules in our hearts through the power of his Holy Spirit who indwells us. The new covenant has been fulfilled in a measure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. It is the truth. We have such cultural distance from this that sometimes it's hard for us to grasp in all of its fullness what's being said here but we do pray that we would understand that our God is a pilgrim God he goes with us wherever we go and that our God is able to change us and transform us into the image of son he is forming Christ in us and for that we rejoice and we rejoice and look forward to the day when we will see heaven open and see Jesus standing at your right hand and we will be like him for we shall see him as he is and this we pray in christ's name amen